Greetings, welcome, assalamu alaikum everyone, my name is Saqib, I'm your host, I hope you're well and in the best of health. In today's podcast we'll be talking to uh, Dr. Ibrahim Jaffe, who is a physician, Sufi master, spiritual guide and has been given the title of Murshid Rabbi Ruhi by the late Sidi Sheikh Muhammad Jamal from Palestine and he's the founder of the Institute of Spiritual Healing, University of Sufism and the Marifa Foundation and we'll be talking to him about his journey uh, through spiritual healing, being a physician and uh, what Sidi uh, taught him in terms of Sufi healing and we'll also be speaking to Sama Ross who has been a student of Sufism for more than 20 years. She holds a master's degree in divinity from the University of Spiritual Healing and Sufism and also a master in French literature. And uh, before she retired, she worked for some 30 years in government and industry as a global leadership consultant, trainer and coach. And we talked to her about what brought her to the Sufi path, the Shatli path, and that of the work of spiritual healing and uh, what her background was as well. The two of them will inshallah be running a workshop in Oxford uh, in the UK between the uh, 10th of November 2023 and Sunday the 12th of November. So I'll put more details on the Hikma Project website uh, if you are interested. In terms of updates, inshallah we will uh, be looking to run some courses uh, in the near future on the Fasus of Ibn Arabi with some classical commentaries uh, like that of Gayseri and uh, Abdul Ghani Nabulsi. So if you would like to get involved or have suggestions on um, study circles or courses you would like, then please do get in touch. Email the Hikma project at gmail.com. So without further ado, here's the podcast. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawmideen Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'in Idina Sarat Al-Mustaqeem Sarat Al-Ladina An-Amta Alayhim Ibrahim Musa Rasulullah Isa Rasulullah 
Dr. Jaffe Sama, welcome to the Hikma Project podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's a wonderful honor for me to be interviewing and talking to you today. Something I've been really looking forward to for some time. It's our pleasure to be with you. We're happy to speak with you. So. Alhamdulillah. So what I would like to do is, having read your book, uh, Dr. Jaffe, is just to start off with the time before you meet Sidi, your spiritual guide. And so you're a trained physician. You notice this incident in the ward in which um, there was an incurable disease and you saw how people were using uh, a traditional way of healing. And then that presumably started you off on your journey to spiritual healing what which traditions and which teachers did you study with yeah those are good questions it's actually there's a little backstory which you don't maybe know about but um when i was younger like maybe in my early 20s um i studied uh with some different healers and at that time uh my auric vision opened up i began to see auras so by the time I got into medical school, I was very interested in disease and auras because I had found that you could actually find illness in the aura before it manifests in the body. And if you could take it out of the aura, you could actually stop disease from coming into process. So I was very interested in that. Um, did a lot of work around that prior to the, the incident in the ICU with this lady. But at that time, and you know, over those years, I studied with uh, a lot of different types of healers. I studied with um, the most profound ones were the Philippine psychic surgeons, where we were working at, you know, they open the body with their hands. They would just run their hands over the body, and the body would open. And then they were going in, and they were, you know, pulling out disease that was in the body. That was very powerful, and. Uh, that was a very formative time for me where I realized the power of, of what we could do with energy and healing. Um, as time went on, I didn't find that they were getting to the source of illness. Like they were, you know, opening the body and taking out a tumor is, is helpful, yes. But why did the person get sick? You know, why was the tumor there? And the more I spent time with it, the more I realized that we were still on the surface. We weren't, we were, we were helping the person heal but we weren't really healing their spirit, their heart, their soul, the cause of illness. And then that was a problem for me. I didn't like it. But just before you carry on, just to be clear for our listeners, when you say the Philippine healers, they would go into the body. Was that physically sort of going in or would it be energetically imagining? No, no, they, they were physic physically going in. Right, they could right. actually physically go in. But uh, it was powerful to watch. But again, uh, you didn't change a person's consciousness. You didn't change their heart. You didn't change their soul. You didn't bring them closer to God. In some ways, you actually disturb the whole process. Like by by healing it that way, the person didn't have to change. They didn't have to grow. And and for me, that was an issue. As time went on, I realized that I wasn't really helping the people spiritually. I was maybe helping them physically. 
not that I could not do that. I had I didn't get to the point where I could open the body, but I was working energetically. Energetically, I could get in, and uh, but I, I felt like I was doing them a disservice because these these diseases come for a reason. And when you take them away without learning, I believe personally that you're sabotaging the person's spiritual growth. You know, so I, I chose to stop it. Um, I did study with a very famous uh, etheric surgeon later, a man named Bill Gray. And that was very powerful that we're working just with energetic usage. We weren't going into the body. We were working with the etheric body. We had a lot of healing of illness with the etheric surgery. Um, but again, I still hit the same problem, which was why we're not changing consciousness. We're not changing, we're not getting to the spiritual teaching of why people get sick. So for me, uh, I eventually realized that, um, you know, the issue wasn't the aura, the issue wasn't going into the body, the issue wasn't the etheric surgery, the issue wasn't, uh, you know, some of the other methods that we were learning that the real healing had to be getting to the root of why a person gets sick. Why do they get sick? I'm still fully understanding it. It's like, it's a very powerful process. And, um, um, you know, for me, there, there is a moment when you can get instantaneous healing. If you, if you understand how to do it, and that's the place, that's my edge. I'm looking at understanding the instantaneous healing, but in any case, um, the bottom line of it is, uh, when I met CD, uh, CD uh, collaborated with what I saw. He said to me, your healing is really good, but if you don't move the heart back to God, to Allah, um, you're not really healing the person. The real healing is when the heart returns to Allah. And so, yes. So before we, I think that's a, a massive sort of discussion we want to Inshallah, take okay. our time over. So, before okay. we, uh, before I just ask Sama on her sort of take on her life before Sidi and whether she came in as a healer or a spiritual seeker when she met him, I just want to know about popular healing approaches. I'm sure many of our listeners would be familiar with now. So, there's Reiki, which I've done a bit of, acupuncture, and also shamanic healing, where people go on retreats and take ayahuasca presumably work with the archetypal realms to heal trauma and have you had any experience with those sort of traditions and what, what do you make of those approaches yeah are you asking samara you're asking me uh, yourself yourself yeah i've had experience with all of that and um i mean not necessarily personal experience but um i've worked with shamans uh, mexican shamans um i have studied uh closely uh with some reiki people i have not actually been trained in reiki i don't actually agree with reiki uh because i have uh, met the reiki masters on the internet and uh i question whether they're really in the light or not i'm not sure about it so i think reiki may be misleading people uh and i and i feel there's some danger with that um as far as ayahuasca uh, you know it's very big today and so many of my students have taken it or used it. Uh, one of my students was uh, one of the assistants to the indigenous shamans down in, in Peru and spent a lot of time as one of their people. So we've talked a lot. Um, and what she has told me is that um, 
even with the ayahuasca, she could not break through what was needed uh, because there was a shell, which we call the tomb. There was a shell that she, the ayahuasca could not penetrate. She couldn't penetrate it. But in the Sufi work, she's now finally able to penetrate the shell and she's freeing her spirit. So she's completely put the ayahuasca aside and is only doing the Sufi work now. So uh, I'm not against ayahuasca, um, but I think there's limitations to it, and some people can be hurt by it. So what about shamanic approaches that tap into the archetypal world? Like they might resonate with the archetype of a particular animal, say it's an eagle, and, and use, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but from the little that I know, they would then tap into the energy of particular animals presumably they represent an archetype or they see things on the archetypal board and start working with their clients on that level is that an approach which works and how does it have its limitations you know it's the same thing most shamanistic medicine is based on hallucinogenics you know they've taken plants and they've opened their vision and they're working with what they've seen so you could say it's, it's hallucinogenic plant medicine to start with. Um, secondly, the, um, the animals are qualities. They carry qualities of God. So, for example, eagle, as you said, is one of the highest of the birds. The birds are very high beings. In the animal world, the birds are probably the top of the, the animal spiritual consciousness. And the eagle is the top of, of that. So the eagle is a very important bird carries a very high light which you can access the problem with it is that people end up worshiping the birds and they worship the animals and they don't actually turn to god because god created the eagle and it's god's light that's in the eagle so if you start to worship the bird and you turn away from god that's the mistake so the, the right way in my opinion is you go to god you understand that god is the source god is the ultimate one who decides if you're going to heal or not so you start with god then you you pray to god and you receive from god uh and then god if god chooses to send you an eagle okay that's fine you can work with that spirit but if god doesn't choose to send you an eagle you probably shouldn't work with it so I, the problem is where people idolize the animal spirits uh, and they and they don't turn to God itself. That's the problem with shamanistic medicine. And you can see this too. I've, I've in, the, in the studies I've done, uh, which are kind of along the Carlos Castaneda uh, group. Um, you know, many of the shamans were not enlightened, holy people, but they were powerful. They had a lot of power. They were, you know, like they could do some really powerful stuff. But it wasn't always of light. You know what I mean? It could easily get corrupted. And and that's my, my only concern with shamanism is just where is God and where is the holiness? And is the shaman practicing that or is the shaman become corrupted themselves? And then somehow through the power of the energy, uh, they might be making problems for people and people don't realize it. That's beautiful. Summer, I'm just wondering whether you would like to add to... <clears throat> this particular question around your time before city what led you to him uh we'll obviously discuss your interaction with him later on but for now was were you sort of spiritually seeking was you already a healer what happened um 
Thank you for asking that question because I love to talk about my time before I met CD. I was a spiritual seeker, um, very young. I remember at five or six years old, I was born into a Christian family and I would close my eyes in church and ask God to show himself to me. And I would open my eyes. And of course, I saw the creation, not understanding that the creation is what Allah created and holds all the attributes of Allah. I didn't get disappointed, though. I kept seeking. And I had, um, as a young child, I always kind of discarded my premonitions I had. But I had very strong premonitions, particularly about things that were going to go bad. And I used to tell my parents, uh, and I'd had very strong dreams and tell my parents things to watch out for. Uh, they didn't discard what I'd say, but I discarded it thinking, oh, this is not, this is not important. My seeking um, continued until I was in my early 20s and I was living in Europe and uh, was very stressed out. I was in Paris and that's, it's a very intense city not unlike London in some ways. And a friend said, why don't you try transcendental meditation? And I immediately signed up because I knew I needed something. And so I became a, a very ardent follower of uh, transcendental meditation and followed Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. You might remember he was the one that um, taught meditation to the Beatles. That's mm -hmm. one of his fame and how people remember him. But he was a uh, he was a very um, in some ways he was he had a, a wonderful uh, practice that he brought to the West that I followed. I even went to his university and served on faculty at his university. So I was very devoted to him. But I always knew in the back of my mind and in my heart something was missing, until a friend of mine from TM was going to the um, School. And by the way, in that same time period, I didn't see myself as a healer, but I did learn Reiki. So there was a curiosity about healing. And and so just um, before you continue, your time with the TM traditional group was, was how long? How long are we talking 20, about? 25 years. Oh, wow. 20, 25 years, yeah. Wow. I met a friend who was at the healing school, and she said, would you like to get a healing from me? And I hadn't seen her for years. So how Allah orchestrates these meetings. And I said, sure, not even knowing what it was. <laughs> My very first experience with prophetic healing, I could feel something shifting in my heart. And that's what I realized as I worked with her, it, it, it only took a few weeks for me to realize this is what I've been seeking. This is what I want. My heart started feeling more compassion. The world changed for me. How I viewed the world started changing. And I still loved TM. So I was a little torn for a while um, between doing the remembrance practice, which we can talk about, um, that is uh, prominent in Sufism, and continuing to do my meditation practice. And I asked my Sufi teachers, what do I do? Because many people in Artuika came from the TM tradition. And the answer was always the same, follow your heart. So and the end of the story is 
I followed my heart because my heart <laughs> was thirsty Beautiful. for something deeper than what TM was offering me at that time. And just on behalf of our listeners who may never have experienced a Sufi healing, what did that look like for you? What was that? In it? Was it just a prayer? Was it on the level of consciousness? Was it energetic? Um, what was were things recited? Was there physical touch? Uh, my first healings, there was no physical touch. It was energetic. There were prayers that I did not understand because they were in Arabic. And I didn't question them. I was feeling the energy of the prayer. So I could feel something stirring in my spiritual heart, something moving, and I could feel my spiritual heart as I had never, I didn't even know it existed before. Because TM is basically a meditation of the mind. Mm -hmm. And of course, being in the West, our minds are the leaders in some respects, not our spiritual heart. So there was something that was moving within me that I had never, ever experienced before. But it was so beautiful and so enticing and so strong that I wanted more of it. My heart was so thirsty for more. I knew there was more. I knew there was more, and I just kept asking my friend to continue to give me healings. Alhamdulillah. That's beautiful. So the next chapter is the meeting with Sidi, and I'll start with Dr. Jaffe. What led you to him? How did you end up meeting him? And what were your initial impressions when you first saw him? Yeah. Well... I would, at that time, I was living in Sedona, Arizona. Sedona is a very famous town for healing. And, uh, and it's a town of channels. They, they have people who channel there. We always used to joke, we'd say there's uh, 100 channels and no radio stations. And uh, that was Sedona. So um, in Sedona, um, I was doing holistic medicine with the spiritual side of it at that point. And, and working on it, developing it. Um, and I found that a lot of the uh, sort of the ancient Tibetan teachings, the, the Alice Bailey and some of the ancient Tibetan teachings, really were along the line of what was opening for me. And I assume that's because I had done a medicine Buddha uh, initiation in my early 20s, and it somehow it, it showed up later in my 30s. But anyways, uh, the bottom line of it was... Uh, I opened a school. We were having tremendous success with healing. I mean, we were healing thousands of people uh, every month uh, with multiple healers. And, and then I opened the school to train people, uh, which was called the School of Energy Mastery. Um, and this was back in 1990, 91. Um, and again, we we had a lot of people coming and I was a lot of, and, uh, you know, we were exploring very deeply the healing, energetic healing. At that time, all of a sudden I started to get really weak. I was having trouble walking and uh, I didn't know what was going on. It turned out that my heart wasn't working properly. Uh, and uh, what I understood about it was that on the inner, I was absorbing like all the negativity of the diseases from the people. And, 
processing them through my heart, but my heart couldn't keep up. It was too many people. And I started, my heart started to fail. I started going into failure of my heart, which is very serious. Okay. You know, heart failure, you die. And uh, at that point I was in my early thirties. So, um, I thought about it, I prayed about it, and, and what I heard was uh, kind of what Sama said, that you were healing from your mind and from the energy, but your heart wasn't clearing, wasn't purifying, wasn't healing, and you weren't really dealing with your own heart uh, either. And uh, I realized that, that I had to learn the heart. I had to understand the heart, because if I didn't, I was going to die. They, and at that point, they gave me about six months to live. So I thought, okay, so I've got six months. I'm going to die unless I get this handled. I know I can handle this, but I can't do it because I don't know the heart. So where do you find a heart master? Where do you find somebody who knows heart? So I looked and so a lot of looking, you know, there was only a couple paths that showed up. And one of them was Sufism. One of them was Christianity. And one of them was, was Bhakti Yoga. So I went into, I looked at Bhakti Yoga, but I didn't, it still brought me in my mind. So I didn't feel like that was going to heal me. And then I looked at Christianity, which there was a lot of love in Christianity, but I didn't feel the depth. I didn't feel that it was reaching like where I felt the illness inside of me, which was deep in my soul. I didn't feel the Christianity that I was studying reaching into the soul. It was outside more. It didn't hit the deep place. So my last chance was trying to find maybe a Sufi master who maybe a Sufi master could reach what i needed to, to heal and um i prayed very hard i said please Allah, and i didn't call a lot of god god bring me a sufi master who can heal this who can heal it at the soul level who is a true master i want a true master you know because it's like i mean i'm a doctor you know you we send resonance in all the time to heal people they don't know what they're doing and sometimes there's mistakes <laughs> because they don't know and people don't make it. And, and there's a big difference between a resident and the chief of medicine doing the you know, doing the, the healing. So I asked that, I said, please give me a Sufi master who's a chief of medicine, not a Sufi master who's a resident. That's what I was praying for. So um, anyways, uh, two weeks later, I heard about Sidi coming to uh, New Mexico didn't know anything about him. I didn't really know much about Sufism, to be honest with you. And uh, I went in to see him. I went, I drove up to see him uh, in New Mexico. And um, I walked into the room. His city was very tiny. He was only maybe five foot three, five foot four. Or, well, maybe a little bit, but he was, a, he was short. And I walked in. And, uh, you know, at that point, I was more kind of Hindu in a way. And I, I kind of did the, you know, namaste. Mm -hmm. And he said, no, 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 we don't do that. Uh, we say, salam alaikum, you know, so, and he, he said, and he said, don't bow to me, bow to God. So he made that, he made that uh, thing to bow to God. Okay. So that was like really interesting to me that this man didn't even want me, you know, in any way looking to him. And I hope I follow that myself today. And at the same time, he said, um, he closed his eyes and then he looked at me and he said, you know, you have six months to live, which was exactly what I was being told. And I said, 
you know, my mind was saying, how could he know that? How could he have the knowledge of my life? And I said to him, I said, I said, how did, how did you know that? I mean, this is the second thing we're saying to each other. He said, if you know Allah, you can know everything. If you know Allah, you can know everything. So I said, um, well, there's a law shows you I have six months to live. There's a law show you I can live. And how can I live? That's why I've come to see you. So uh, he closed his eyes for a very long time. Uh, and, he, and he was deep in meditation. We came out. He said, I had to travel very, very, very far to get the answers for you, whether you could live or not. He says, you can live, but the problem is that you, all your work, your spirituality is coming from the mind. It's coming from meditation. It's coming from that path. He said, you have neglected your heart and your heart is dying because you've neglected it. And if you're going to live, he said, you're going to have to drop all that stuff. You're going to have to start like a kindergarten again in your heart and walk through your heart, learn how to do this through your heart. So that was the, the decision that was made with the whole thing. So I said, uh, all right, let me think about it. It was a big thing because I was, you know, again, 20 years practicing the other way. And, uh, and I thought about it and I said, um, okay, initiate me and I will study with you if you promise me that you'll truly can heal me. And I said, if you really can, please don't play don't play, play games with me because you're playing with my life. You know, if you really feel you can't do it, then I don't want you to do it. Give me some, you know, I'll find somebody else. And he laughed and he said, yes. He said, I can help you with this. Uh, and I said, fine. Then I took initiation with him. And then I asked him, we got into a discussion about enlightenment. And I said, are you enlightened? And he said, um, Sufism is different than that, but in, but in your world, yes. And I said, um, can you guide me to enlightenment? Because that's really what I want. I want my dream is to reach enlightenment. Can you guide me to enlightenment? And he started laughing. And he said, I can take you far beyond your concepts of enlightenment. He said, what you think enlightenment is, is just the beginning. There's much, 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 much more. And I can show you that. I can show you the depth of what's possible. And I said, and that was the that when I heard that, then he could heal me. That's when I chose to really embrace the Sufi path at that point. That's beautiful. And just for my listeners, the just for clarity, the school you had opened up, the uh, holistic healing with the element on spiritual focus, was that rooted in any particular tradition? Was that Buddhist he um, healing? I think you said something earlier about that, or was it just generic? holistic healing well like i said i think when in my 20s i did the medicine buddha initiation which i think put me in the tibetan lineage so the tibetan what started happening when i was in around 27 was that i would start to have dreams of of masters coming to me they would actually start to come to me and as they came to me uh, they would start to teach me they would show me things like this light how you move it, how you look into something, how you open something, where the diseases were in the body, how to work with it. So all the teaching for me was all done directly with connection to these these inner teachers. Um, later, I found that somebody gave me one of the Alice Bailey 
books on esoteric healing. And actually, I found that almost everything I was learning was right there. So I realized that in a way, whatever she was channeling, whatever I had been given, were the same and very similar. So that be, I realized that was esoteric healing. But esoteric healing is you're working with chakras, you're working with energy centers, you're working with the soul, you're working with, you know, rays. But what you're not doing was you're not working with the heart, you're not working with God, and you're not working with divine names. And you've touched on something really important here, the the concept of initiation, and which is rooted in tradition and a lineage. And it sounds like this goes beyond a formal sort of agreement, but something which aligns you on the inner sort of levels. And, and then you took hand with Sidi, who initiated you. So what does initiation mean in the Sufi context or in any in a wider context, if you like? And what what role, how important is that for a seeker of truth? I, I think initiation is very important because uh first of all it's very easy to go astray it's very easy when you're on your own to follow what you think is right and what you think is wrong is right is not right and then you go astray and then you hurt people you know for example um we saw that with john of god a little bit recently with what happened over there there was no quote supervision who was supervising him so that he you know like in a, in a normal uh, lineage the higher lineage holders who have been certified supervise lower ones so that if you start going astray, you stop it and you, and you, and you purify it so you don't go down that road. That that was missing. Um, so lineage, first of all, having a lineage is important on the outer, but on the inner, um, many of the spirits, like when people reach the enlightenment or they reach the unity, the spirits are very conscious when they die. And they're present. So you have a lineage of essentially enlightened or unity teachers who are there who will help guide you and hold you and correct you and help you if you're conscious of them. And even when you're not conscious of them, they still help you because you feel them. They feel like if you do something wrong, you'll feel sick inside. You'll feel something not right. You're, they're sending to you, hey, you're making a mistake. You've got to stop this. It's not right what you're doing. So you have uh, protection. There's protection from the lineage on the inner. And on the outer, there's also, when you have people who have ijaza, who have permission, there's protection because they have been deeply, deeply uh, tested to make sure that they don't go astray. You know, and so you don't get to be one of these higher teachers without very serious testing. I'm so that. that's the beauty, of, the beauty of the lineage. That's wonderful. And so, Sama, do you would you want to add to your first encounter with Sidi and and what that was like? Yes, I. Um, there were many people in my area. Again, most of them from the TM community who were interested in Sidi. Um, but I was very devoted to Marwishi, and I just came to hear about CD um, out of curiosity more than anything, and also because I had been getting these Sufi healings, and they were really helping me. So um, the very first time that some of the people, my friends, took hand with CD, I was the stubborn one. 
they were on the telephone. He was in Jerusalem. We were here in Maryland. Um, and there were maybe 10 of us. And most people were going ahead on the telephone, taking hand with him over the phone. And I was the last holdout. And I said, I'm, I'm not doing this. This is, this is, you know, Marishi is my guru. He's my guide. And um, CD might be an interesting person. I don't know him, but I'm not going to do this. And within about a minute of saying that, I found myself on the telephone taking hand with CD. <laughs> and I could not explain it. And there was no mental uh, logic to it. There was no... Uh, you know, I had been digging in my heels and suddenly I'm on the telephone and it felt like this light came over me that was palpable. I was laughing. I was giggling and um, I was so happy. <laughs> so that was my first encounter and I took hand right away. And then a few weeks later, the same group of people, we came together at the home of uh, Selima Edelstein, who is one of our She's the co-president of the university, of the healing school, and a very prominent teacher. She was my teacher. And um, we were having lunch at her house, and we were talking about the Sufi path and um, healing, et cetera. And uh, several people at the lunch table said that they were planning on going to the healing school. Salima turned to me, and she said, Sama, are you going to the healing school? And I said, no, 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 I'm... I'm at this point, I was a, a hardcore cultural consultant um, in the corporate world. And I was working with very high level uh, leaders and felt great importance from that. There was a lot of arrogance that I carried because this is, I wasn't working in a world with big egos. And so my ego had to match theirs. And I felt going to a healing school, it didn't fit the profile I had of myself. <laughs> I took a bite of my sandwich and I literally choked when I said, no, I'm not going to the healing school. I it grabbed my throat. Not choking in the sense I thought I was going to die, but clearly something was blocked here. And so my beautiful friends sitting around the table and my wonderful teacher, Salima, she just took my hand and she said, so... Let's revisit that question about you going to the healing <laughs> And again, without my mind getting too engaged, I found myself on an airplane going for the next session of the healing school. I still hadn't really in my heart, though, fully accepted CD. I'd taken hand with him, but I still wasn't sure about this man. Because he comes across, when you first met him, he, he could be gruff. And um, he spoke with a very thick accent. And um, he was so different from Maharishi. And so I was still a little hesitant and shy around him and wasn't sure really, uh, even if I wanted to get close to him, I uh, wasn't drawn to him. I was drawn to his teachings, but not to the man. And so at the healing school, my very first session, he was there and he was teaching. And he showed up every time for every meeting, he would always be on time, which defied my own stereotype as an interculturalist of people from the Middle East, because the people I had worked with in the Middle East were not on Western time. And so that was my first, hmm, this is very interesting, this man. I um, arrived five minutes early to the class, and there were maybe 
I don't know, eight or 10 of us sitting in the room and CD arrived five minutes early also. And he was up on a platform and he looked out among us and he said with tears in his eyes, I will miss you. You are all my beloveds and I have to leave today. And I saw a tear coming down his cheek. And I said, this man is real. He is my guide. He is my father. And I fell in love with him at that moment because there was this real sentiment of how much he cared for me. The rest is history. I mean, the other huge gift CD gave me, in addition to many others, is that he married my beloved and I, who had been dating for three and a half years. My beloved did not want to discuss marriage. He was very much afraid of it. He was committed to me, but not yet to the point of marriage. And so he, he lost a bet with me, <laughs> which is another story. And he came to see CD. First time he'd ever met him. But he was also very devoted to Marishi still. And uh, we went up to ask CD if he could bless a company that we had just formed. And um, we had no clients. We were both successful consultants in our own fields, but we wanted to work together. And when we asked CD that question, he said, give me your hands. And he married us. <laughs> <laughs> this was something that I had wanted for three years. <laughs> I remember that day very clearly, Ibrahim walked up to my beloved, who he didn't know, hadn't met officially, put his arm around him, looked him right in the eye and said, you do know that you are really married now, <laughs> just in case there was any doubt. <laughs> So uh, time and time again, my beloved and I have thanked CD for, we used to thank CD every time we saw him for marrying us. And his answer was always the same. Thank Allah. Mm. He's a very modest man, very humble. Beautiful. So let's take a bit of a deep dive now into CD. And um, he, as far as I know, was a, the judge's judge in, in, Palestine. He was the chief judge. Uh, so he was trained in the Islamic sciences. Uh, he was a custodian of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I mean, that's a pretty high position to have in the first place. And then on top of that, he was a Shandali Sheikh. So Dr. Jaffe, could you just tell us, before we look at your interaction with him and how he put you through training and trials and taught you to the tradition. Let's just look at uh, uh, Sidi himself and his how he received his teachings. I read somewhere, I think it's in your book, his um, he seemed to have this connection with Ibn Arabi and Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani, two prominent Sufi figures, and possibly I think uh, Rabi al Adawiya. What was, tell us a bit more about S uh, Sidi, his, his sort of background, how he was taught Sufism and what sort of connections he had. Yeah, I mean, Sidi was <clears throat> Sidi came from a uh, a Sufi family uh, in in Jerusalem, and his grandfather was a Rafai Sheikh. Rafai is a a Tariqa branch of Sufism, 
And his mother, if I understand, also was uh, very holy as well, uh, and also, I think, Sufi. So he came down this lineage, and he was recognized very early, even like five years old, that there was something very special about him. Um, and so they kind of put him into an accelerated um, teaching to, you know, prepare him for his future. They recognized that he would be a great sheikh and that, that he would need that. So he was taught uh, Quran and memorized at a very early age. Uh, he was put into all the Islamic sciences early on. Uh, extremely bright, extremely, you know, I, you know, we've never talked about IQs, but I'm sure his IQ is very high. Um, and uh, I think uh, as time went on, he felt there were limitations within the Sufi teachings that he was receiving. And at that point, uh, he began to seek something deeper, and he was given to the uh, Shadaliya Tarka. There was a Shadaliya Tarka. And the, the head of the Shariyatarka was believed to be the Kudub. The Kudub is like a, what's called the pole, the central pole. And there's every Tarka has a Kudub, but then the, the world has a Kudub, uh, which is like the, the spiritual head of the world, you could say. And it was believed that this man was the Kudub of the world. That was what the story was. So he was placed with him. So what's um, his name? What, what was the Sheikh's name? Um... It was, it was Sheikh Tilmasani, uh, was, was I believe, his name. And there was another. There was, he was actually bringing together two lines, and I can't remember. I think it was Sheikh Tilmasani who was the Qutb, but there was another one as well. Um, so, and I may have that wrong. If I, if I do, I apologize. But they, the two lines, the, the two Shadowly lines came together. So he studied with both Sheikhs. One of them was Qutb. And, and they then uh, transferred that to him. He became the inheritor after that could have died. And so Sidi, at that point, was I don't have any idea what his age was, but he was younger, maybe 30s or 40s at that point. Um, and he uh, was then very quickly elevated into a very high spiritual rank uh, where he pretty much became the one who studied everything, you know. So he was, in other words, he was the, the one that was kind of leading the people at that time. Um, from that point forward, uh, he found, my understanding was that he wasn't finding the teachers to train him uh, that he needed because of his own rank. So what he ended up doing is he began uh, to be able to contact uh, the spirits of Abdul Qadir Jalani and, and Ibn Arabi. And he actually went and he spent time studying with them. He actually spent time um, with, you know, at their tombs, uh, communicating with their spirits. He had all their textbooks. He would study their textbooks and the spirits would then um, help him to understand uh, what it was that they were teaching. So he spent a number of years drinking from Ibn Arabi, Abdul Qadir Jalani, Hassan al-Shadli, he knew uh, Rafai, and he brought all that together, and he, br he brought that into his teaching, which became his own sort of... Uh, he was he, he clearly said it was Shadli, but it was Shadli that had 
opened to some of the deeper teachings of Jelani and Ibn Arabi. So it became a very, very high teaching. Uh, and that's what he brought in. At that time, uh, you know, what he told me was that he believed that the Shadowlea line had the fastest way to God. He felt that it was the most complete. It was the fastest. And therefore, he put aside all the others to, to really hold the Shadowlea line. Uh, however, he also felt that, uh, um, you know, that the, the influence of Ibn Arabi was, and Kudinjilani was very important. For the Gnostic levels. That's beautiful. And what about the Sufi healing that he taught? Was that part of the Shadali lineage, or did he learn it from his grandfather? Or what's is that part of the Sufi path, or was that distinct? <clears throat> well, I think that the uh, the uh, the Tib part, which is the herbal part, uh, it, he learned from his grandfather. And he's he's a very good herbalist. He's a, he actually had to spend a lot of time learning the tib. The spiritual side of it, actually, um, I don't know if he took that directly from anybody or he developed that himself. I'm not actually sure the source of that, to be honest with you. Beautiful. And could you tell us, given he was a prominent scholar and and gave sermons in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, what was his approach? How did he view Islamic law? And often there's a there's a tight balance between the inner and the outer, and some traditions or some schools in the West are, are now advocating a, a non-Islamic Sufism. You know, so it's not using the framework and just doing the inner sort of work. Oh. I mean, first of all, he was trained in the Hanbali school of Fiqh. And Hanbali is probably the strictest school. And he had a very strict education. In it. And, and, and I think that affected his own way of looking at Fiqh. I think, I think he carried a, a, a fairly, um, I don't want to say strict, but he, he carried that, that deep Hanbali understanding within him. Um, you know, at the same time, um, you know, he had learned from uh, Junayad, who's one of the great Sufi masters, that that uh, hakika, meaning enlightenment, unity, without Sharia, which is the outer law, was not accurate. That, and, and there were a lot of statements in this. He would say, if if you um, uh, if if you study hakika and you're not balanced by Sharia. That your hakika would go astray, and at the same time, if you had Sharia but you didn't have hakika, that you would end up oppressing people through the Sharia. So he was very clear that you needed the combination of both to really fully have a complete understanding of how to really guide people. Um, so I, I think with that, he ended up uh, becoming uh, a judge in Palestine and Jordan. And then uh, became the head judge, and then became the judge of judges. When the judge of judges is the one who goes around <clears throat> and has to, um, what's the word, uh, look at, follow, you know, make sure, check all the other judges are operating in the accurate way. So that was his role. His on the outer role, he was the Qadi al Qadi, he was the judge of judges um, for all Palestine and Jordan. Um, 
On the inner, he, as you said, was a Shadowly Sheikh who had inherited, uh, I believe, the role of Qutb, uh from his master. And then um, he was brought into the position of the head Im uh, imam of Al-Aqsa. So Al-Aqsa, for people who don't know, you know, there's three holy sites in Islam, uh, Mecca and Medina and, and, and Al-Aqsa. And he was the head sheikh of Al-Aqsa for probably 40 years plus. And, uh, and during that time, he was guiding uh, the Palestinians through the Israeli occupation, um, the multiple wars that occurred between uh, the, the Arabs and the, and the Jews. Um, he became very close with Menachem Begin. And in fact, uh, he told me that the much of what happened in the Six Day War, which ended, uh, and and there was very little bloodshed or not what it could have been, was due to the relationship between him and uh, Menachem Begin. And that um, you know, he told me a story that he that that Anwar Sadat and Menachem had come to a conclusion, and they made they signed a treaty or they you know it was a verbal treaty. In Arab world, that's a big deal. Like when you give a word, if you say this is what I do, you better do it, you know, because your word is more important than what you write on a paper. Well, apparently, what happened was after they signed it, uh, Menachem Begin reneged on it, and he went back and he said, "I'm not going to do it." Which, again, in the Arab world, is like the greatest insult you can give. It was a tremendous insult, and. Um, Anwar Sadat was infuriated, apparently, and was going to attack full on in Israel because of what happened. And because Sidi actually stepped in and he explained, he brought the mercy. He brought the mercy into Menachem Begin to apologize. You have apologized to Anwar Sadat. And Anwar Sadat, you need to be the mercy. You need to receive this because this is for all the people. It's not just for the two of you. You know, it's for everybody. So he he made the two of them sit down together. Uh, apparently, Menachem Begin apologized and worse it out and accepted it. And they signed the Six-Day War when the war ended. So he had a, a very prominent uh, political role in that way. He had the role of being imam of the mosque and, and guiding the Palestinian Jordanian people. Um you know, he had very frequently more than one to five million people that would come. Uh, he told me, oh, I just spoke today, yes, uh, on Friday, Juma, to uh, three and a half million people today. We had a good talk. You know, he was teaching uh, large, large groups of people. Um, and he was in a war zone. You know, he was dealing, you know, it was a continual, the, the 20, 30 years, he, he was 40 years he was in there, there were continual battles going on between the, the Jewish people and the Arabs, um, there were multiple wars, um, a lot of people dying. And I think that gruff uh, skin that, that Samaa talked about was from having to deal with that level of violence and animosity for 40 years straight. You know, you had to be very strong to be able to hold, uh, you know, uh, multiple attackers like that. Uh, he told me one story again. Maybe I'm going on. You can cut this out if you no, want. No, but uh, <clears throat> he told me a great story where, where at one point, uh, um, 
the uh, the Jewish people wanted to, you know, regain the Temple Mount because uh, the story was that they could re, you know, build the temple that that would be the rise of Judaism as a world power, you know, as the leaders of the world. So that it's very important in Judaism to be able to, you know, the Messiah would return when the third temple was built and the Jewish people would be brought into a prominent position worldwide. So this has been going on for many years now, in my understanding. So there was a lot of um, desire to regain that area and to get rid of Al-Aqsa and the golden, you know, the dome of the rock and uh, and to rebuild the, the Jewish temple there. So at one point, uh, they, the story was that the the uh, military surrounded Al-Aqsa and they were going to run tanks over it. They were going to bring tanks and they were going to bring all the buildings down. And uh, city uh, grabbed all of the people who were on the, on the mount and they formed a large circle around all the buildings so that they would have to run over the people to get to the buildings. So the, the story is, is that uh, the Israeli government brought in the sharpshooters, I guess it was the Mossad, I, I don't know, but they brought them in to shoot the uh, these people. I don't know if they were using rubber bullets or what they were using. Oh, I think Jeff is just frozen there. I'll be back. Yeah. You yeah. said something about rubber bullets. Okay. Uh, I don't know if they're, they're getting a lot of unstable connection here, but bottom line, uh, they the Jewish sharpshooters were brought in and to bring the, the Muslims down so that they could raise the buildings and bring the tanks onto the, you know, get rid of all the buildings. So um, apparently later, uh, City the next day they stopped it. They did stop it. Didn't happen. Uh, the next day, city went to a cafe, and the head of sharpshooter, the head of the you know the one, the main one, walked into the cafe and introduced himself. He said, "Are you you know Sheikh Mohammed?" Uh, and he said, "Yes." He said, uh, "I just want to come and meet you." He said, "Because uh, I am the top sharpshooter. No one's better than me." And he said, "I shot at you many many times." And the bullets would not hit you. The bullets kept being turned aside and would go off in other directions, but they would not hit you. And I realized that that you truly were a holy person, that God would give you that kind of protection. So I've come here to say hello and meet you and say my salams, my my blessings to you. So it was, you know, this is kind of some many, many stories like this, but this that was one of my favorite ones that happened with City. And so Dr. Jaffe, could you for our listeners, uh, especially those from Muslim backgrounds who've often experienced Islam from a legal perspective. When, and I'm thinking of Ibn Arabi's school of law here, where it's just filled with compassion and mercy, and he accepts all the positions essentially as valid and then has his own take often, which allows for the opening you know, for, for something to come through and he allows for compassion and mercy. 
So did the Hakika Siddhi embody inform the way he practiced the outer Sharia? So on the one hand, somebody can be quite strict, but on the other hand, there's a certain beauty in the form that they adhere to. You know, it's a manifestation, it's a zahir. It's not just being strict in external form, but it's informed by a sense of beauty and love of, say, the sunnah. You know, it, it's not just a, a legal prescription or, or a commandment. There's a, it's informed by the heart. What I'm really trying to ask is the relationship between the hakika and the sharia. Did it inform the way he understood and, and practiced it? I mean, these are really broad, really broad questions you're asking, you know. Um, I think that uh, the question is, you know, what is the relationship between Hakika and Sharia? You know, the, like what, you know, how does that come together? I think that's really the deep question. Um, I think the, the answer is first, your your studies of Islamic law needs to be very sound. Like you need to really have a sound understanding of what you're studying. Um, and when I say sound, I, I would say also balanced. Like like a lot of times, sometimes people learn Islamic law, there's a lot of fanaticism in the learning. Um, and I think that leads to um, a very strict, uh, somewhat aggressive form of Islam, and which I don't personally like because as I think it takes the right the rights of people away, and I don't really believe that's how Prophet Muhammad uh, practiced it. I don't believe he practiced it. I think he practiced uh, the law with mercy, and not only with mercy, but with Gnostic realization. And I, you know, you've heard me tell the story, and I'll tell it again for your listeners about the two men that came to Prophet Muhammad. He's a Muslim be upon him. And what and one of the men said, <clears throat> you know, Prophet, what is the the thick on killing somebody? Uh and the Prophet looked at him and said, If you kill somebody, you'll go to the deepest hell and you'll never come out. And and uh it's the worst thing you can do and never do it. And I and I and I don't know all the words, but basically contradicted it very, very strongly. And it was very, very unusual because they, they, the companions knew him as very merciful, so they never heard him come down with a uh, dictum with that much harshness. And they contemplated it. And then a while later, another man came and said, uh, Prophet Muhammad, uh, what is the fiqh on killing somebody? Uh, and he said, oh, he looked into the man, he looked at the man for a while, and he said, well, Allah is the most merciful of the mercy. And if you truly make talba, you make repentance, um, Allah will forgive you, you know, for what you did. And then, you know, the companions, uh, Umar, Abu Bakr, whoever else was there, you know, they uh, were like shocked at the radical dichotomy of what he said to the two people. But you see, for me, this captures the real understanding of, of Hakika and 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 fiqh and sharia when he looked with hakika marifa into the first man he saw something with allah's guidance he saw that the man 
was going to kill somebody. And this is on the inner. So he saw the bottom. He saw something on the inner. He saw the man was going to kill somebody. He saw the future. The man wanted to kill somebody. Now, once he saw that, he understood that he needed to protect this man's soul. So the man didn't kill somebody and then would deal with whatever the outcomes of that would be, which is a major thing, major sin. So he gave a very strong uh, statement to him. You're going to go to the deepest hell if you do this because he stopped. He, he put in what was needed to stop the violation of divine law. And it worked. The man didn't kill anybody, in my understanding. Second man, when he came, the same thing happened. Using Hakika, using Marifa, using divine knowledge, divine insight. He looked in and he saw that the man had killed somebody and was deeply repentant about what had happened. The man was losing hope because he didn't want to kill somebody. Whatever happened, happened. Um, and he felt incredible mercy and compassion for this man. This man needed hope. He needed to know that there was possibility that he wasn't going to be thrown into the deepest hell. So he gave the man the medicine so his spirit could make true talba and would have the greatest chance of receiving Allah's forgiveness in the afterlife. And this, this is the interplay between Hakikah and Shari. If you don't have this, then you have to rule your your legal rulings through your sharia but the problem is we've seen this in many countries they're 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 ruling in a way that is not good they're, it's going extreme it's going into extremism the mercy is gone the compassion is gone it becomes a very uh what's the word radical form of islam and I think that this is what we have to be careful about today is Islam is, the prophet was the mercy. He said, I came as a mercy to the people. He had uh, He had deep understandings, which a person of Hakika has something like that. Maybe never to the level that a prophet would have, but they have insight. They have very deep insight. That insight can help with the ruling. So it's not just so harsh and cold, but there's mercy and there's compassion and there's it's like an understanding, okay, well, maybe this person really has made Talba and they've understood it, so maybe we don't have to be so strict with them because they're not going to return to it. Or somebody else might be saying, oh, yeah, I've got it, and yet when you look deep, you know they're lying. They haven't changed anything. They're going to do it again. A person of Hakika would probably know that and, and would be able to give the medicine, okay, this person really hasn't changed. You know, Maybe they need to go to prison or maybe something needs to happen. This person did the same thing, but you know what? They really understood their mistake. They really made a difference. I give mercy to this person. So for me, uh, personally, um, I am very much in the Ibn Arabi school. I, I very much believe that um, the highest form of, of thick comes from mercy and forgiveness when it's appropriate. In other words, you don't take a murder, you don't take a serial killer and turn him back out on the street again, out of mercy, because he's just going to go kill somebody. You you know you you have to know that he's changed, or you don't. You're going to keep people safe. But at the same time, um, if there is a shred of goodness and light, and you can develop that in the person, then having the mercy to help them is actually the higher way of being.
And so I, I very much follow that that school. So now coming on to some more esoteric aspects of Sidi's teachings. In one, I mean, we mentioned uh, lineage earlier on, and obviously you have a beautiful lineage going back to Ibn Mashish uh, through Sheikh Abu Hassan al-Shadli and Abu Madian, who Ibn Arabi was very close to or regarded as his teacher, and then all the way back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. So what, and again I'm thinking of my listeners here, in terms of understanding the role of the Prophet in Islam and particularly in the Sufi path, I know uh, Ibn Mashish in his Wazifa, it's all around the prophetic substance, the, the Prophet, peace be upon him. What in your understanding is the Hakika Muhammadiyah or the Muhammadan substance? And what role does it have in a seeker who's approaching the truth or journeying towards God? Um, I mean, Sufism <clears throat> is based on the inner reality of the Prophet Muhammad. And peace and blessings be upon him. It's based on the inner reality. And, and then you know the, the story where um, I think it was uh, Umar came to uh, the prophet and he said to him, there's a man out in one of the villages. He has a, a bird uh, on his back, a, uh, what do you call it? A, not a tattoo, but a uh, birthmark. Looks like a bird. And you find him and he knows me truly and and you need to go talk to him because you don't know me and, and and these are his companions and they went to find him or went to find him and found the man it was a sheep herder and said you should go say your salams to to the prophet peace and blessings be upon him and the man said no 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 i can't do that i'm too shy i can never be in that great of a presence and i'm just happy to be you know here that he's alive but i could not go see him and the and out of their discussion, this man said to Umar, you, you know his presence, but you do not know his inner reality. He said, I know his inner reality, and you don't know that. And I'm too shy to go to him because of the greatness of his inner reality. Sufism is based on understanding the inner reality. But modified, real Sufism, modified by uh, the divine law. In other words, you're not leaving... The divine law, the divine law is there. You're practicing it with mercy, with love, but you know it. You don't cross it. You're not going to do adultery. You're not going to slander people. You're not going to, you know, cheat people as in merchants. You're not going to, um, you know, do anything like that. You know, you're going to marry in the right way. You're going to divorce in the right way. You know, it's all based on the basic fic, but it's within that you're learning the reality of the prophet, what is really going on inside of him, which is not just the outer law. People, you, th you think that the outer law is everything. The outer law is a shell that contains the spirit of the prophet. The spirit is the Hakika al-Muhammadiyah. It's the reality, the inner reality of the prophet, which is the mercy which defines the outer and holds the outer. If you have a tree and you cut off its spirit, even if you have a strong outer shell the tree is going to die you have to have the life of the tree is the spirit the life of the tree of islam is brought the moment the reality of that tree comes from allah 
through his reality into the religion. So Sufism is not about dropping the outer. People misunderstand that. It's not about that. And then and, and those that are doing it have lost something. They've lost a very important part of it. The outer is, is just a reflection of the inner. The outer is Allah's words on the mulk. And the inner is Allah's words in the lahut, and the jabarut, and the malakut. And, and these come together. They're not separate. You can't just have Allah's words on the inner and not on the outer. Allah's words are both. So we, you have to honor the outer, the, the divine law, the fiqh, the sharia. You honor it. You respect it. You learn it. You practice it with nobility. But then on the inner, you temper it with mercy and compassion and insight and understanding and gnosis and tajali from, from Allah and insight that helps you to understand how to apply the outer in a gentle and kind and loving, uh, profoundly um, noble way. And, and that's the that's the value of these the inner teaching. So for me, as I said before, if you have somebody a hakika and they throw away sharia, then nothing will restrain their hakika. They can do what they want, and they get in trouble. We've seen that over and over again in the last hundred years of people reaching enlightenment and then getting in trouble because they're they're not restricting it with sharia. But the other side of it, we see people with Sharia who, you know, are killing their own children because of something happens that they don't like. And, and there's all sorts of practices that are going on throughout the world, which are extremely uh, without the mercy of Islam, the mercy of the Prophet within it. That is also a problem. So there's extremes on both sides. The center is the center path. Is the is in my opinion the right way? We need to follow, we need to know the outer. We need to know the inner. We need to bring them together. That needs to be practiced with love and mercy and kindness and clarity and law together. That is the correct way to practice it. And I believe that's how Sidi practiced it. I believe that was what he brought into. Mm -hmm. So, Doctor Jaffe, some questions around terms and definitions. And I'll let you decide whether you want to give a metaphysical bent on this or take Zidi's teachings or your own kash for your own understanding. Uh, and so these are quite broad, but um, they, I think, are pertinent, important questions for uh, listeners. One is the word God means many things to different people. And so when you use God or Allah, is it another archetype? Is it a concept? What do we mean by this term God? I mean, for me, God and Allah are the same. You know, I, I don't see any difference between Allah and God. The real God, you know, the real God is, is Allah. You know, it's the same. There's no difference. I think many people, you know, have in, in the West anyways, we have many different gods. You know, some people make the eagle a god. Some people make a, a, a Kachina, Hopi Kachina a god. You know, some people make... You know uh, attributes of god you know are as god so i think that god is god and god has attributes and attributes are worshipped by people and not god itself and that's that's the main issue so when i say god i say allah the god the one who has 
the essential reality has attribute and those attributes can play out as you know an eagle or can play out as an angel or can play out in different ways it can be carried by you know angels are carrying the light of let's say al-rahman or Rahim or something like that or or you know al-bari or Suir. but um we shouldn't be worshiping them we should be worshiping god and really appreciating and valuing uh, the attributes and how they manifest themselves. So, from a from a Gnostic's point of view, when they use this term God, as opposed to say somebody who is only religiously conditioned, who also uses that term and says I worship God, but they haven't tasted or uh, have haven't uh, the awareness of the greater reality for somebody yeah. who's just simply religiously conditioned from the gnostics point of view when they are turning to the absolute reality the truth and presumably the source that's what they refer to as god is, is that right is that how you, you would yeah yeah the god god is you know we say there's a there's seven heavens right and we say that there's a throne in the seventh heaven and that god sits on that throne but i i I think that's a very human humanized understanding of it i think that um god's reality surrounds the entire creation and interpenetrates it you know sitting on the throne is not just you know a man sitting on a seat it's a light that that interpenetrates down the entire existence galaxies and atoms and human beings and things we don't even know about other dimensions you know who knows you know god's god's reality interpenetrates all of it and is the ultimate authority over all of it and he's ultimate goodness so for me um when we say god we're talking about that beyond conscious being who is the the, the king the malik of all of it who has ultimate control of all of it ultimate authority out of all of it and yet chooses to define himself with compassion and mercy and, and that for me is what we're worshiping we're worshiping the one who is ultimately beyond everything has power over everything is ultimately good and at the end of the day loves us and cares for us and is claimed to us and supports us and, and that for me is a being worthy of worship and, and that's what we worship Super. And then what does it mean to be a Sufi? Who is a Sufi? And I'll just add a little context. There's a saying that the person who claims to be a Sufi is not a Sufi or the first sign of, you know, somebody who's a Sufi is they never claim to. So what what is, and I guess for my listeners, maybe within context of the modern archetypes, like the yogi, the monk, you know, these these mainstream sort of ideas that they're more familiar with. And often when they hear Sufism, they think of whirling dervishes, who are obviously one manifestation of Sufis. But what what is what does it mean to be a Sufi? Well, again, um, when Allah uh, created existence, it says He created existence so that we would know Him. And that, that's like the core of creation: that existence was created so God could be known. Um, how do we know God? Well, a lot of people think the way you know God is through through doing right actions that God is pleased with. 
but that's just that's like a kindergarten understanding of it that's 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 necessary to do it but that's not knowing god that's knowing his actions it's knowing how he ordains his actions but knowing god is something much more profound god has to be found and you will not find god until you purify your heart so that you can find god in your heart god we, we, you know he says only my faithful believer carries my carries me you know it's it's in the heart that god reveals itself and if your heart is full of anger and hatred and fear and judgment and you think you're better and you're arrogant and you think you know more how will you ever find the reality that could express itself inside of you 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 have to take responsibility for your own heart and your heart should be a heart full of love it should be a heart full of kindness it should be a heart full of mercy for me if i don't personally if i don't see love and mercy in a heart uh, and feel it i don't feel the mercy and the love in somebody's heart um whatever they're teaching i i have I, i'm not sure i trust it because i just i just don't feel it then i know that it's going to come from hidden anger hidden rage hidden je jealousy hidden you know something shirt maybe i don't trust it but when i feel the real love and mercy in a, in a person's heart i know they've done their work and so whatever they say it's even if it's maybe not classically understood it's coming from the right place mm. and, I, and i and i trust that more mm. that's beautiful and so we define muhammadan substance god sufi something we've spoken about before but i just want to have it on record for our listeners because i think it's such an important um teaching is often or in some cases, some Sufi paths can focus on the zikr, which one can argue is, is a good action, but also has an impact on the heart. However, some Sufi traditions and orders have a foundational inner work, if you like, in which it's not just the transformation of the heart, but it's also clearing those vices actively, seeking and clearing not just relying on the sort of you know uh, the zikr to uh do that have that impact but to turn within and to um acknowledge and face those vices and then various approaches divine attributes etc and often it's the sheikh uh, who would come in in a community and do this inner work um, in some traditions, anyway, and then we have the remove the working on those vices, decorating the soul or the heart with beautiful qualities, and then the spiritual experiences which can transform faith, which can can strengthen you on on, on the mystical path. So this brings us up to the question around spiritual healing and spiritual walking what's the relationship between the two because often they're seen as separate but you've always said they're not separate they're one and the same thing well again we have to go back to the creation story allah created us to know him and then he says i was a hidden treasure longing to be known and i buried myself in the heart of the faithful believer this is the whole story 
if I'm a hidden treasure that I'm buried in the heart of a faithful believer, where am I? Why can't you find me? Okay, well, the reason you can't find me is because your heart is veiled. Within what are veils? Veils are negative emotions. Uh, veils are negative experiences. Um, veils are illusionary understandings. Uh, and there are veils of light, which are the attributes and how the attributes veil the reality itself. So there's veils of darkness and veils of light. The Sufi, <clears throat> at the end of the day, has to go through the veils of light, meaning that you have to learn compassion and then you have to return your com your compassion to become like God's compassion. And when, you're, when your compassion completes and perfects itself, you've come closer to God. You've taken on the attribute of compassion. You're carrying it. Okay. If your compassion is full of hatred, what happened to it? You know, in other words, your compassion has been corrupted or you could say veiled or constricted you have to purify that you, you there, there has to be a purification of let's say that as a child you needed your your mom's or your dad's compassion you know you fell down you hurt yourself you wanted your dad to be nice to you and say oh you know you really hurt yourself i love you i'm here for you and instead your dad beat you up how dare you do that you know, I don't like that. You, I don't want you crying. You be strong and don't ever say a word. And you, you, what do you learn? You learn there is no compassion. Compassion becomes veiled. You don't have it. So to reach, to find the hidden treasure, you have to unveil the compassion. You have to find compassion or you will not find the hidden treasure. But you see, the thing is, <clears throat> if you hold the image of your father not giving you the compassion and he really hurt you and you felt like you were punched in the stomach when he did that, the image of your father will interlay in your body, in your stomach, and, and it will go into your unconscious and it will hang out in there for the rest of your life until you purify it. If it is strong enough, like you felt like you were punched in the stomach, it will sit in your stomach and it will begin to eat away at your stomach. And over a period of 10 or 15, 20 years, you will end up with disease in your stomach of some type. Okay, if you're going to heal that disease, it's, it's the same thing. You've got to go in and find out that experience of being punched in the stomach by your father without the compassion is inside of you, you have to release it. When you release it, the stomach frequently heals. But when you release it, you're also learning to be compassionate and you're coming closer to God's compassion. So pure spiritual purification, spiritual healing is nothing more than an outer manifestation of what's purified in Sufism. In other words, the, the stomach gets sick because you, you've not taken care of it for 20 years. If is that's my experience. If you go in and take care of it immediately, or even later, as long as the body hasn't passed the point of no return, the body usually can heal. In other words, if you 
scarred up your stomach because of that that um, memory, and now you have scar tissue all over your stomach. You pr- you may not be able to get your stomach functioning back. Okay, but if the body is still possible to repair itself, the body will repair itself once you remove once you re- you release the splinter of that experience. So really, it depends on the state of the body, the state of the immune system, if it can repair itself. But at the end of the day, spiritual purification and spiritual healing are exactly the same thing. There's no difference. Spiritual healing is when the the image of that experience, the memory has gone in the body and now is being manifested as an illness by uh, Allah's will. Allah says, I want you to understand that you cannot function this way any longer because this experience is destroying you. You're not taking care of it. So now I'm going to show it to you as illness. So you have to face it. So you have to clean it. So you have to come closer to me. I'm going to make you do this. It's done from mercy. People don't like it because they get sick. It hurts. And I, I get that. Nobody wants it. But at the same time, Allah is trying to show you something very, very important. And you have to see it. If you don't, then you miss it. And that's why I say, like, when I was doing the Philippine psychic healing or surgery or whatever, <clears throat> pulling out a disease, and we haven't looked at why the person's sick. I haven't helped them discover the hidden treasure. All I've done is taken the disease away, and they're never going to discover it. And that's my issue with those things is that sometimes you need to you need some help you really do need it but if you don't take the time to take care of what allah is asking you to take care of you've really shot yourself in the foot you've really not helped yourself you've actually broken what allah has given you beautiful so just on this theme on allah showing you things reminds me of the Quranic verse, we shall show them our signs in the horizons and within themselves. And um, there's this idea of mirroring, which I know Maulana Rumi just got to take one example of a classical source. It's not necessarily a modern idea, but Rumi talks about the Chinese artists and the Greek artists and how uh, the Greek creates something really elaborate when they paint this room, but the Chinese, I might have got them mixed up, so apologies for that, but I think the Chinese basically polish the wall until it's basically a complete mirror. And when the sun comes in and the curtains are drawn, the Greeks marvel at the beautiful paintings they've drawn, but the Chinese basically reflects all of that majestic beauty from the heavens back. And, you know, I think that's a really nice metaphor. So I'm just going to read two quotes to you, and this again is looking at Sufism and Islam outside conditional understandings, but to see them in a universal perspective. Because I think, from my understanding, Sidi did touch on these themes in his books and in his teachings, but I'd like to hear it from you. So the first one is by Carl Jung, uh, and the quote is, unless you learn to face your own shadows, you will continue to see them in others. So see them in others. Projection. Mm -hmm. Because the world outside is only a reflection of the world inside you. End quote. Could you comment on that? Oh, I, I love that. I, I absolutely love that. And, and I agree with that 
Um, and I think that's actually one of the issues with Sufism, honestly, is that some people, they don't want to look at the shadows. They're looking only to Allah, which is really right. But if you don't take the time to look to Allah, but also tether your camel and, and look at what's going on inside of you, your shadows will play out hiddenly inside of you. You have to look at it with Allah's light. So the answer is you 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 go to Allah first. You learn to illuminate your reality with Allah's light. But then when Allah shows you something like a trial, something happens in your life that's difficult, you have problems, you ask Allah then to illuminate what is in my ego, what's in my shadow, what's in myself that is not right. Allah will reveal it to you. You'll see it. Oh, there's my arrogance. There's my jealousy. There's my ego. You see it. Once you see it, you don't just you know, flitter it away. It's not important. You clean it. You take care of it. You wash it. You clean it. You make it impeccable. I watched City do that over and over and over again with people that came to him. I even saw him do it a few times with himself over the years. And, um, and I certainly myself do it all the time. Um, we are looking at our own, we have to look at those, those tarnished places inside of ourselves and clean them with the light of Allah. That is what will make us complete people. It is what Jung is speaking about. Uh, and truly, it really is the Sufi way. And if you're, if you're not doing that, you miss something, you forgot something. You miss something. So if he was face to face with Jung, I think his approach is to bring consciousness to the manifestation of the, of the darkness or, or the shadow. But in the Sufi way, I believe it's the use of divine names. Could you say a bit something about those that approach or what yeah, CD? I mean, awareness of the shadow you know, falls probably under the quality al-Khabir. It's, it's using a quality to reveal something. But in Sufism, we don't want to only use a quality. We want to use the reality, or we want to access the reality, which is we call Allah or Hakikah or these states. So in Sufism, you want to be aware of the shadow, but then you want to bring the illumination of the reality into the shadow so that the shadow can be understood through Allah's wisdom. And, and it, it, it totally changes what happens with the shadow when you do that. I, I love that because for me, it's saying <clears throat> when you reach that point where you see your shadow, your nafs play out, you're taking ownership to say, oh Allah, this is my responsibility but you're not saying i can change it you're saying allah it's your light that can change it it's it's your power i'm almost helpless here i'm turning to you in this need you know and and that's so beautiful and i believe that to be the highest and, and not only the highest but it also is what makes us find the hidden treasure you know we, mm -hmm. we transform the shadow and when we transform it what, there is a fragrance that comes out of it, which is truth. And that truth is what takes us back to God. And Samar has got her hand up here, so I'm just going to bring her in and see if she's got something to 
When we're talking about um, mirrors, I think it's really important also, and this is something we'll, we'll be talking about in our upcoming workshop in Oxford. Uh, I think it's really important also to recognize that um, the whole world is a sign for people. Mirrors are everywhere, including the mirrors of beauty, kindness and compassion that you encounter in your life. They're reflecting back to you the beauty, the love, the compassion, the kindness you carry in your own heart. I think we need to remind people of that more often because we all tend to beat up on ourselves. <laughs> I need to find my shadow. I need to find my faults. I need to find my defects to clean them. That's all very well and good. But you also have to find the beauty within yourself because Allah gave you that. And you have to honor the gifts that he gave you. And so many of us are walking on a very thin line of uh, self-assurance and confidence as we walk this world. So I think we need to remember that part of mirroring as well. Yes. Um, I have a beautiful story. I'm not sure if now is the right time to share. Actually, I will since it's come up in my consciousness. So I'm sure there's a reason for it. I'd be very brief, though. It was during a retreat with Noura and Wadud, and Noura had led us into a zikr of Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim, one of those names, at least. And um, I we had break, and I went and got some tea, and somebody called Rahma asked me where I got the tea from. And my initial response was, take mine. And she said, are you sure? I said, yeah, take it. And I went and got another one. When I came back, um, I felt a deeper sense of compassion playing out in that relationship, in that interaction. But I didn't take ownership for it. It was a compassion from a different, from, from the source. You know, and I acknowledged that. I said, this is not my generosity or my compassion. This is Maybe it's the zikr that Noura just did. So now, interestingly, Sama, you've just uh, read my mind there because my next quote was all about mirroring. And the context, I'll just say, is um, I think it's a very important one. The, the Quranic verse, we shall show them our signs on the horizons and in themselves. So the outer manifestation of events, but also the inner, the, the afaq and the anfus. And Dr. Jaffe's mentioned how an illness can be a sign or a mirror to something that God wants to show you. And so my question would be, can you say something? And I know Dr. Jaffe has in the past told us lots of stories of how an outer event can also be a mirror. But let me just read the quote and then see what comes up. So the quote's by Byron Katie, which says, everyone is a mirror image of yourself, your own thinking coming back to you if you want a better world question your thoughts about the world and the people in it end quote could you dr jaffe say something about the manifestation of what allah is trying to show you is it always an illness could it be in an event and also on the inner planes how does that look on on the inside yeah you know allah wants us to know his beauty <clears throat> and his magnificence and 
And that's not, God is not egoic. This is not an egoic knowing. He wants us to know it so we can have the experience of the greatest possibility of our lives. It is a gift to us. God doesn't need us to, to do that. God wants us to do it so that we can know what's possible. Everything, and I mean everything, everything that happens in this planet is a manifestation of the divine. Everything. So you can, you know, take it up to macro levels or micro levels, you know, but but every single thing that's happening is happening through God's will. Um, the key is that we, as human beings, have to understand um, what God is trying to show us um, through each experience. Because he's hidden in that experience. He's, he's, he is the hidden face of the experience. So a bully comes to you and beats you up. Not a very nice thing. But behind it, God is trying to show us to be strong. And then through the strength to realize that God is strong. And then to realize ultimately that when we're strong, we have the power to overcome the bully and every bully in our lives. That's trying to teach us through the experience. But if we turn around and we say, oh, you know, I don't want to learn the experience. I don't, you know, I just run away. I'm frightened. I don't want to deal with the bully. We don't learn the experience. So God is revealing his face in every single thing that we experience at all times. If we look for it. And that's what these signs are. That God is saying, I'm showing you my signs. I'm showing you something to show you that I exist. I'm here. Find me. And some of those signs are very beautiful. You know, you see, you know, Mount Everest, and you're looking up at the mountain where the Grand Tetons and Wyoming surrounded by purple and golden light, and you're you're just your mouth drops open because you the, the beauty of it's beyond anything you've ever seen. This is a sign of God's beauty and grandeur. You know, other times you see, you know, a baby dying of cancer, and you see something terrible going on. And yet behind it, there is the face of Allah. You have to find it. So our work is to find God's face in every single experience that exists. And the true Sufi is one who finds it. They're finding it. And you, you heard the story where there was a, a horse or a donkey died and the people were passing it and they were all like, Oh, that's disgusting, and it smells disgusting, a terrible corpse. And then the prophet came, peace and blessings be upon him, and he looked with the eye of God, and he saw the absolute beauty of death, and the beauty of the animal in its death, and the beauty of the animal itself, and the beauty of the creation of Allah and the animal. He saw all of it, and he said, isn't the teeth of this this donkey so beautiful. Isn't this beautiful? Sufi sees beauty in everything because they find the face of God. So just to add to that, was it funny enough, you've just touched on the next question I was going to ask. The quote by Maestat Ikhat, and I guess it echoes what many Sufis say, 
the eye by which I see God is the eye by which he sees me. Is it possible to see God? Or what do these Sufis mean when they say that? God reveals itself as light in the inner worlds. That's how God reveals itself. No one really sees God, you know, in the sense of maybe ever seeing all that God is. But God does reveal something of himself or itself uh, in the world of the Jabirut. And in the world of the Malakut, the soul worlds, God reveals some of his light. But to see his true light, the eye of your heart has to become his eye. In other words, when your al-Basir, your quality of al-Basir, is returned to Allah, so it becomes literally like Allah's sight, then through that sight you can see his light. If you haven't returned your Basir to be that pure, you will not be able to see God's light. And by the way, I do have a, I do, I do have to leave shortly here. I have a class in a few minutes. It's true. So if we just wrap up, then... Could you say something about the uh, workshop in 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 the UK you're planning to run? Well, I um, at the at the at the core of it, the UK community is a very vibrant, um, extremely uh, what's the word? Interested, sincere, honest group of people. They're sincerely wanting to know God and they want to know love and they want to know mercy. The, the UK workshop is about taking people deeper into the reality of God so that they can know the real love and the real beauty and the real peace, the real mercy, the real justice, the real freedom. That's the intent of that workshop, you know, and we have things we'll be we'll be teaching some healing, we'll be teaching purification, we'll be teaching how to move the remove the veils. But the core is knowing this light of Allah, knowing this reality. And that's what that workshop will be about. How can you find this place? How can you find the hidden treasure that is God? That's what we're going to be teaching people. Samad, you would, would you like to add to that? I believe you'll be a co-teacher during that workshop. Yes, and I'm honored uh, because I've been coming back and forth to the UK for several years now uh, to participate in these workshops. And I've fallen in love with your beautiful community there. Um, I think the only thing I would add to what Ibrahim has already explained and deeper aspects of the workshop is that there is also a practical aspect of moving closer towards the unity. And it's called the path to unity. So that could mean unity that you need to create or work on in your own home, in your community, in your work, in your country. The world can certainly need more unity these days. So uh, we'll be looking at really practical steps you can take as we walk deeper and deeper. And of course, the bottom line always is in spiritual healing and Sufi walking is to grow closer to God. Well, on that note, I'd just like to thank you once again for your time. And I really look forward to meeting you in the UK when you're here for the workshop. And inshallah, I look forward to doing more podcasts. I just feel we've just touched the tip of the iceberg here and got many, many more questions for you, inshallah. Thank you very much, Lamin. It's been really um, 
beautiful to hang out with you for this time and, and to see your heart. Um, you know, I really feel you serving the people, like you're really trying to help the people in the world to understand the depth of Sufism and what, what needs to be understood. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. I mean, thank you, Saqib. You bring your beautiful light to everything you do. Thank you. Thank you.